Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I got to talk to Max Coleman. He's working at Brad Schoenfeld's lab and recently conducted a paper looking at the impact of a one-week deload or detraining period within a training cycle as part of his master's thesis. You might recognize that name or this deload study because Brad Schoenfeld talked about it on our previous episode. And it was really great to understand where this study stands within the general literature as a whole, why Max wanted to do it in the first place, what they specifically did, what they specifically found, and then the practical take-homes from this study, but also the limitations as well. So you as a trainer or a coach can best implement this new information as best as possible. And guys, if you enjoy this episode, then please let us know whether or not that's a comment on YouTube, a thumbs up on YouTube, or maybe over on Spotify or a like podcast provider, you can give us a really great rating and review. We'd highly appreciate it and share this episode or the podcast with anyone you think might benefit. And we'd highly appreciate that too. And of course, if you aren't already, please be subscribed because that helps the podcast grow too. But without further ado, let's get into the chat with Max. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast and I am very excited to be talking to Max Coleman today. Um, I've known Max for quite a while and uh, I was really great to see him doing some work with Brad Schoenfeld and at his lab and I commented over on an Instagram post I can still remember and Brad was like, you need to bring Max on the show and you might recognize the name because when I had Brad on, Max came up his deload study came up, which left a lot of people very curious and interested. And now it's, I guess, come out to some extent. It's a preprint. So people have been able to kind of open it up, read it and digest it and have their takes on it as well. I've also read it and uh, it's always great to talk to the actual lead author here. So Max has been working at Brad Schoenfeld's lab and conducted this paper where there was a, a one week deload or I guess a week off training within this nine week training block. And that's what we're going to dig into today. But I also wanted to just like ask if there's anything else you wanted to share about yourself, Max, uh, but also what got you interested in to work at Brad's lab and how did you find yourself there? Yeah, so uh, no, nothing. I'm an Aries if people want to know that. Yeah, no, I don't really have <laughs> anything else to share about myself. I think you hit it there really well. Um, yeah, so I well, first of all, I, I know every podcast ever starts off with people being like, oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. But this is Revive Stronger. Uh, I think Alberto Nunez recently called it the you're the Larry King of of our field now. So being here yeah. is, a, is a true honor is very sweet. Uh, yeah, not we need a British equivalent of Larry yeah. King, so it'll make more <laughs> sense. Uh, but yeah, I know. So it's a true honor. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, it's what got me interested in working at Brad's lab. So I got interested in lifting at a pretty young age. I think I was like 12 or so when I really started getting into lifting. Uh, and like every Gen Z kid, I think the first place I went was YouTube and found individual like my, you know, six pack shortcuts and what have you. Uh, and but Brad Schoenfeld's name kept coming up and up and up in all of these videos. And so he kind of became like a, a big I became a huge fan of Brad pretty early on. And then it was a pretty obvious choice as far as like where to go for my master's with regard to exercise science, given that he's the person that I've been following for the last 10 plus years. So that was the impetus to go to Brad's lab, obviously. I'm surprised. I felt like you would have been too young to have got taken by Mike from Six Pack Shortcuts. Like that's where I remember heading like in the early YouTube days. And yeah, I don't know if there's a certain type of person that just I, I I didn't get attracted by actually I remember almost I was on his sales page because he had like some sort of sale I, I didn't actually end up purchasing it I don't know what stopped me I just maybe realized at some point this doesn't seem like a, a good idea uh, but I think there's a certain type of person that just gets attracted by the I guess the guys talking in a more uh, I don't know to say it scientific way or explaining things type of way like giving more detail behind the whys and hows to why we do things because I got attracted by those individuals on social media and YouTube and eventually got attracted to like the, the, the true scientists and experts within the field. Whereas I think some people just don't know, they gloss over that and they are more attracted to like, I don't know, the more entertainment side of things. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something, a trait that I see in common with people that go the route you've gone down. Yeah, it's pretty lucky. I, I don't know if it's like a thing that's inherent to me or not. I think that it's just a matter of like, I stumbled across Omar Esau's channel too. And he's pretty, he was pretty good at like making things entertaining while still making them really evidence-based. So shout out to people like that. that are the reason that people like me are able to do what we're able to do. 
Yeah, and I guess and now, you actually good now. Oh. Now you're one of those people as well. Uh, so shout out to you, and I, you're also a huge reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. So all of your interviews with people, like when I was starting starting out in college, were like a big reason why I I started gearing myself towards exercise science more than the majors that I was previously considering. So thank uh, you, shout out to you. I appreciate that. It's nice that that kind of comes full circle a little bit as well. And now Jeff Nippard is doing like the the real job there like with the millions of followers he's got over there which is fantastic so a lot of people are getting kind of exposed to this sort of thing i guess next best would be to talk about your study uh, which was gaining more from doing less the effects of a one-week deload period during supervised resistance training on muscular adaptation so i'd first of all just like to ask like why did this topic interest you uh, if you don't mind sharing like what, what made you want to do this study in particular yeah, so uh, it was quite of a mouthful of a study there, uh, hearing you say it out loud. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I was I like, I should have truncated that a little bit. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so I mean, we can talk at the impetus for the study in general, right? Uh, I think Pack was on your channel not too long ago talking about deloads, and he talked about the idea that deloads are kind of more common belief than they are common knowledge, obviously. So deloading sounds really incredible on paper, right? And and there's a lot of really, really intelligent people in this field, like proselytizing all the benefits of deloading. Um, but unfortunately, these claims that people make regarding deloading are a bit unfounded, not entirely unfounded, but they're just certainly not very well supported by the research that we have on the matter, right? Um, and it's not that we have studies saying that deload's bad or that deloading is really detrimental. It's just that we don't have very many studies on deloading in general. And we have a couple of studies looking at like detraining periods and their effect on hypertrophy and strength. Uh, so there's two really good studies by Oga Sawara et al. Um, where they had individuals either train continuously for six months or do like six weeks on, three weeks off for a couple of cycles, right? And they didn't find any like drastic differences in strength and hypertrophy. Uh, and that lent itself pretty well to like a proof of concept for deloads. You know, maybe they're not, they may not be as great as we thought, but they're not necessarily like hurting us in any way. Uh, but there's some problems with those studies. They used untrained subjects, pretty small sample sizes. The periods of detraining that they used were a lot longer than what is typically used uh, in deloading practices normally. Uh, so that was kind of the impetus, just that large disconnect between not only uh, the scientific community and the individuals actually within the fitness community, but also just the paucity of research regarding deloads in general with more ecologically valid protocols, right? So that was the push to actually do a deload study. Yeah, it's, I can't think, I, when I first got introduced to deloads, it was like a 531, I think, like Jim, Jim Wendler's 531. Mm -hmm. Did you ever run that program? No, I no, didn't. No, <laughs> I, I, I did not, no. So, I've uh, never ran, I feel like I should say this right off the bat, uh, I've never ran a strength program in my life. I don't care about <laughs> strength. Strength is not my thing. Yeah, so just you're put in the right place right then. okay good, good. <laughs> i don't care anymore either i used to and uh, i think matt ogus uh, who was like my guy back then to be following and following everything he was doing so he was running 531 but that was my first exposure to deloads and like the theory behind them why they might be beneficial and also like submax training that was the first introduction to that because you do a lot of submax lifting but you're completely right in that i think and it it frustrates me because i've definitely been there and that individual to almost parrot these benefits of these concepts where it's not that like you said absence of evidence is an evidence of absence that could definitely be like benefits to these things and we're pulling them from somewhere in terms of like coaching practices and like background just like bodybuilding and now we're brad's doing all this work and you're doing all this work to like what did the bodybuilders get right in the past what didn't they get right what can we do and refine but it's definitely something i've like used heavily within my coaching practice and i've seen benefits from but it's like a lot of them were just like, I guess, again, it wasn't like sound, like sound scientifically based assumptions. It was uh, using more of weaker evidence, but maybe sometimes presented in quite a strong way. I would say like, if you're not deloading, you're an idiot or something, you know? And can you say that if there isn't like really great like evidence to back that statement up? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's definitely, a, and this is another reason for me wanting to do the study, there is a good logical rationale for why we should do deloads, right? Uh, I mean, you've heard Mike Isertel on your channel talk about them like extensively, and it it's very convincing, right? Uh, and we do have some data showing that there might be some benefits. So we have some detraining studies looking at, uh, it's like protein signaling molecules, as well as just uh, like testosterone to cortisol ratios, like showing a favor following deloads or periods of detraining. So there are 
reasons why people are talking about how good deloads are and, and they've been used for decades and decades and decades. Uh, it's just a matter of making these claims, but we should also be aware that there is very limited data on it up until pretty recently, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I guess because when I'm thinking about a deload and the listeners will be thinking, I do a deload to remove that accumulated fatigue from that kind of hard weeks of training that I've been doing to set up, therefore, a new mesocycle where my performance is in a good position. They might be using the fitness fatigue kind of performance model in their head. And then there's also those side benefits of maybe I'm avoiding some injuries that I can't quite feel that are going on underneath the surface in my kind of joints and tendons and things like this, which aren't maybe completely obvious and you can't necessarily feel all the time. And then maybe this resensitization effect also that's setting up and pro like propelling a new phase of training. And uh, you had, what was your hypothesis going in? And then I guess we can talk about what you did. Yeah, so the idea, we kind of assumed that there would be slight benefits to those in the deload group. I, I, I must say, I, I do typically tend to agree with the null hypothesis in this field, which is to say, it's kind of a joke, but it's to say that like, typically I don't expect to see drastic differences between interventions in this field, um, just because they're pretty rare. Uh, but with this one, I expected there to be like modest differences in hypertrophy. And I expected, especially with strength, to see a pretty big benefit in those that detrained. Uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read the paper, that didn't happen, obviously. In fact, we saw the opposite. Um, but yeah, so we can go into actually how we went about doing the study, or we can talk about just deloads in general. It's up to you. Yeah, I think kind of digging through, I think as you delve through the study, what you did, uh, it will help. Like, and then we can we're probably kind of with each part dig into various aspects of deloading and kind of those thoughts okay cool yeah so like we said like i kind of just said there are there is some data surrounding deloads but it's it's not great uh, ecologically speaking so it doesn't it doesn't fit well what bodybuilders and, and trainers are actually doing in the real world right so the goal of our study was to gain some insights into the effects of deloading using protocols more in line with what you typically see in the real world right um, so we took 39 men and women. We started with 50, but with training designs like these, there's always dropouts. So we took 39 men and women with an average training experience of like about four years and placed them into one of two groups, right? Either a deload group who trained for four weeks straight, took one week completely off of training, and then trained for another four weeks, or a traditional group that just trained continuously for the entire nine-week period, right? Uh, both groups performed two weekly lower body sessions in the lab with us. So those were the supervised sessions. And those consisted of five sets in the eight to 12 rep range of Smith machine squats, leg extensions, uh, leg press calf raises, and seated calf raises. Uh, participants, all sets were taken to volitional failure and had you know, two minutes of rest between sessions. Um, and also participants performed two upper body workouts that were unsupervised, but they logged those workouts and sent them to us so we could be sure that they were adhering to the program, right? Uh, okay, uh, for the number lovers out there, that equates to about 20 sets for the quads per week, 20 sets for the calves, and then 50 weekly sets for the entire upper body, right? We assessed muscle thickness uh, of the quads and calves, as well as one arm strength, isometric strength, counter movement jump, and muscle endurance, both pre and post. And then finally, we also measured uh, subjects. Oh, and one thing, uh, I will say subject when referring to participants in the study. I know that's faux pas, and it's something that I'm like trying to work towards, but it's it's something I've been saying for like a decade now, so I do <laughs> apologize. Uh, anyway, so fine, lastly, uh, we also assessed uh, our subjects' feelings regarding training. Uh, and their perceptions of their fatigue using what's called a readiness to train questionnaire. Uh, but we didn't do that pre and post. We did that after week four and after week nine of the study, kind of to get an idea of how people were feeling after, you know, a traditional mesocycle length, right? So, yeah, we can break that down a little further if you want. I kind of just threw a lot out yeah. you, uh, or we can start talking about what we found and stuff like that. No, yeah, no, that was that was good because I had questions on, obviously, I, I, I didn't have, there was additional I guess, resources to check what the upper training looked like and what the other lower looked like or something. So you you cleared what the other lower looked like in that it was a repeat of what I think was described in the paper. And I was also like, well, these guys want big calves. I was like, 10 sets in like one session was a fair bit. And then, uh, so they're doing quite a lot of volume through those. And I guess, so they weren't training hamstrings. They just trained kind of quads the whole time. Is that right? Yeah, no hamstring training throughout the entire study, uh, which, you know, is unfortunate. And it's, it's one hard sell when you're trying to recruit yeah. subjects for a study is like, no, your legs are going to grow like crazy. 
also caveat no hamstring training whatsoever yeah so definitely no hamstring training throughout the course of the study but it was a nice split between like isolation leg extension to the to the smith machine squat and i mean 20 sets is still that's a decent hit with that amount of volume for people that have almost been training four years and everything uh taken to uh voluntary failure am i correct so it's yeah, like good. to the point where they were yeah, so and we'll touch on how hard individuals trained throughout the course of the study. But yeah, it was too volitional failure, not momentary muscular failure. But with that caveat being that, yes, that is to say that not every subject took every set to failure every single time where the bar was actually falling them on them or anything like that. But they were training very hard throughout the course of the study. Yeah. So yes, 20 sets uh, to volitional failure a week for the quads alone is is a pretty gnarly program for sure, especially when you throw that on top of everything else they were also doing. Yeah. And I guess it's, well, actually I was thinking because you, um, I think you said 90 weekly sets for like as total for all muscle groups. So I was thinking it was near the 10 sets a week for like most muscle groups, but actually the quads just got to the, all, all the hamstring work maybe. <laughs> so yeah, they were we'll getting just call extra. It a, a specialization phase for the <laughs> yeah. quads and calves with not low volumes for the rest of the body either. And then just so people are clear, that was nine weeks straight for one group. And then the other group did four weeks, a week off, and then they didn't make up that week of lost training. So to train the same amount of time, they just ended at the same point as the other group. So one group only trained eight weeks, actually. Yeah, exactly. And that was something that Doc and I kind of discussed. It, it, it kind of, it's kind of a trade-off there in that, yeah, one group is getting a week more of training, but it also kind of lends itself well to like, the real world, meaning we have a nine week period to train in. Uh, yes, one group may get more than the other, but it but it's realistic, right? It's realistic of I'm taking a week off in the middle of a training block, right? So doing, I mean, traditionally, it's proposed to do like four to six weeks. That's usually what you hear people talking about as far as deloads are concerned. So uh, given that we are using like uh, college age subjects, and we operate on like a school calendar year, nine weeks was like basically the best we could do in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that was great. And I think the only other thing like some people ask about, I just have a note here, was the their diet, they just maintained their usual eating as normal, didn't they? Yeah, uh, we did uh, some dietary food logs in the begin the first and last week of the study. So the first five days of the study and the last five days of the study, we had subjects uh, track their food on MyFitnessPal. And we actually had a registered dietitian on staff to help them, like walk them through that process. And she's amazing. Jamie, shout out to you. Um, so yeah, and we found no differences as far as, as dietary consumption between groups or within groups. No, 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 no differences at all. Three to post. So at least we can be somewhat confident that their diets didn't change too much throughout the course of the study. Yeah. Amazing. So I guess it'll be good to give people the results or you already gave the, the shock factors gone. Now people know already what's, what you're going to say and to some extent, but for sure, what, what did you find? Yeah. The shock factor is gone with all the posts that are going around Instagram saying deloads are terrible, never deload. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a bad idea. They're a waste of time. Uh, yeah, so this is the interesting part, right? Um, findings, for the most part, uh, and out across most of our comms were pretty standard and not really all that surprising, right? So both groups definitely got bigger and uh, they increased their muscle size, but uh, there were no real differences between groups. And the same can be said regarding like muscle endurance and muscle power, right? So both groups improved, but no group improved or outshined the other by any means. Um, however, uh, things get a little interesting when we start talking about strength outcomes. And if you hear me say something is interesting regarding strength, it probably is actually interesting because it takes a lot for me to care about that. Um, so both groups got stronger, right? Uh, however, those in the group that trained continuously and did not take a deload did show slight benefits to those that deloaded. Uh, and this is true for both one RM strength and isometric strength. Uh, but the findings for isometric strength were a lot more stark than that in the one uh, RM. And I, and I have theories as to why that might be if you'd like to discuss. Um, but before that, we do have some cool findings for our secondary analyses, right? So that readiness to train questionnaire gave us some really interesting insights as well. Um, so for example, uh, those in the traditional group saw slight benefits to those in the deload group with respect to muscle soreness. Uh, so those in the deload group actually saw an increase in muscle soreness from week four to week nine. So after week four, they felt a certain amount of soreness. And after week nine, they actually felt more sore than they did after week four, right? And then individuals in the traditional group actually saw a decrease in the amount of soreness that they experienced following week four to week nine, right? And then we also saw some interesting stuff regarding like motivation to train. Uh, so subjects in the deload group 
this is super interesting, saw a decrease in their motivation to train. So following week four, they had some desire to train following their workout. And then after week nine, that desire to train was lower than it was in week four, whereas those in the traditional group saw no difference, right? So the things that are kind of crazy, I, I, I threw a lot there uh, to sum it up. Uh, no differences in hypertrophy, endurance, or power, slight benefits to those that train continuously uh, for strength and their perceptions of their readiness to train, right? Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, we can, sorry, I'll, I'm kind of rambling here. So we can break that down a little bit before I start proposing ideas as to why. No, that's 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 all good. Uh, I have like various points on my, like notes on my side where we might, I might pull you back to certain aspects of it. But um, the thing I found found interesting is like you mentioned before, like people on social media are saying how like you shouldn't deload and all of this. But uh, like you mentioned, like we kind of, as you framed, one group trained a week less, but essentially saw the same hypertrophy. Like that's what ended up happening. But I think at least one person I saw posting, which was Mena Henselman's, he pulled out, I don't know if he he dug into the paper a little bit deeper than what just reading the paper would have given you, but it seemed the people training nine weeks, did they actually end up growing a little bit more than the people that just did the eight weeks and had the week off? Yeah, so I, I saw that and I'm I'm not exactly sure where he's deriving those values. Because if you look at the results of our study, I mean, if you look at the the diagrams that we or the the figures that we uh paul swinton is actually our statistician he's amazing uh and he made these beautiful figures that show exactly what you need to know regarding hypertrophy and it's like pretty clear that there's almost no differences i you can say that there may be a slight slight benefit to the soleus in in the deload or uh, yeah in the deload group but even that i, I don't i don't i think that's a bit of a stretch to say so i i gotta say i not to start any beef with Meadow Henselman who could both beat me up intellectually and physically. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I gotta say, I disagree. I, I think that they are very equivocal regarding hypertrophy as far as taking a week off versus not taking a week off, which is corroborated by the studies by Ogre Sarara. And, and they saw even, I think that their subjects ended up doing like 75% of the amount of training that the continuous training group did. And they saw almost no differences in hypertrophy of the chest or the triceps. So it's not that stark, I, I got to say, as far as like hypertrophy results are concerned, they're not really that surprising, uh, given that they kind of are corroborated by previous data. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, uh, I guess when you think about, I think about, oh, that's oh, like 90 sets they didn't do, and they still saw equivocal growth. I don't know if you extra, extra like do it, continue this study, and obviously their motivation to train was lower, they got more soreness, and maybe that would have effects later down the line where they weren't growing as well. But I thought that was interesting. No one really pulled that like element of it. It's just like one group just took a week off in the middle of the study, and they saw just as good growth. But no one really kind of sung to that message. I thought that's <laughs> well, at least people not just aren't interested in no differences amongst groups. They just <laughs> yeah. you know they they just don't care if it if one group didn't outshine the other. Uh, but I think that the findings for the like you kind of brought up the motivation to train the the psychological aspects of deloading is kind of for me what I've always thought were the the best portions of a deload. Like I don't I've never been super convinced of any like physiological resensitization to training from one week off of, of lifting. But that feeling like that feeling of relief, knowing that there's a week where you get to live like a normal person and like, you don't have to kill yourself in the gym six days a week is really nice. Uh, but our findings seem to suggest that maybe taking a week off may be doing more detriment to your like psychological or to to like measures of psychological fatigue than than training continuously. Now, I'm not just someone who just takes the findings from one study and immediately thinks, okay, that means that deloading is actually bad for psychological health, but it's just an interesting finding, no less. Yeah, I think, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but at the end of the nine weeks, like the participants that did nine weeks of training, they were still happy to continue training again. Like they didn't feel the need to deload. They still felt good and ready to continue. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so we touched on that in the discussion of the paper, which is that uh, we asked all of the subjects. So th they came in for their final testing session, which was on a different day than their last training session. So they usually had like 48 hours or so uh, between their last training session and when we came in for post-testing, right? And 
we asked each each and every one of them if they felt the need for a deload or like what their plan was going forward after this week. And almost all of them, except for like maybe one, said that they were going to get back to training basically immediately. So even those in the continuous training group, after nine weeks of training and, and hard training, that is, they were just ready to get right back to it. So maybe it was a statistical anomaly that we just happened to get a bunch of freaks that love training. Uh, but it also maybe lends itself well to you probably don't need a deload as often as you probably have been in the past, assuming you've been doing them every four to six weeks or so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe they were just desperate to train their hamstrings again. And <laughs> like, give me an RDL, give me a leg curl. I can't get off these leg extensions. <laughs> I can't imagine finding someone that's just dying to get back to the gym to do RDLs. I, <laughs> no. I, think, I think that's probably pretty unlikely. And it is like you said, a lot of the time, I don't know if it's the conditions leading into the deload I guess this is maybe what you'd think is the conditions leading into the deload are a result of what the conditions were out of the deload in that most of us, like you mentioned, when you go into the deload, like you feel like you need it uh, psychologically, physiologically. And so you feel you possibly benefit from it psychologically, physiologically. Whereas in this instance, do you feel like the results you got from taking that week off were down to people going into it and being like, hey, I don't actually need this time off. And so that's why the motivation coming out of it was like diminished. Uh, it's certainly possible. Um, but I will say that perhaps the reason that a lot of individuals like yourself and myself who, who feel as if we need a deload following, I don't know, a certain number of weeks of training is because we've been told for the last several years that we need a break following a certain amount of weeks of training and that the deload is going to provide all this benefit to us. So I, I definitely think there's probably some degree of both placebo uh, for those of that think that deloads are really good and some nocebo for people that think that detraining is going to be really detrimental. Uh, I will say that I think that people on average in this study probably tended to lead more lend, lead more towards that nocebo side of like, I don't want a week away from training. I don't feel like I need one and all my progress is going to be lost. So there's definitely probably something there as far as them thinking that this was going to be a detriment because I know that we're kind of wrapped up in our own circle here. And we think that like everyone loves and uses deloads, but the average gym goer probably doesn't even know what like a deload is. And when you tell them that they need to take a week off of training, it it's probably going to like make bells and whistles go off in their ears rather than them be like, yes, finally, I get to take a deload. So absolutely, I think that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, I think your note there, it's very easy to know CB yourself for, for a variety of factors. As, as I coach people longer in this industry and I end up coaching quite a lot of coaches and they've learned certain quote unquote rules of like, oh, I should be deloading here. I should be taking a diet break here or I should be having refeeds or my rate of loss is too fast given my level of body fat, whatever it might be. But yeah, I always am quick to remind them what's happening in real time. Like how are you actually doing? Is your performance great in the gym? Then you're probably not dieting too fast. You probably don't need a diet break if you feel amazing. Like these sort of various factors where like people are quick to just, again, read a textbook or whatever the, the general evidence-based recommendation is out there and they don't actually listen to how they're doing. Or again, they know SIBO themselves where they're like, oh, I feel like crap because uh, I guess I'm dieting and I should feel like crap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and, and I mean, I'll, uh, I'll lay my cards on the table. When you and I were working together, I remember this super vividly. I We had just finished week five of a mesocycle and we're about to go into week six and you were like, Hey man, things are looking really good. Like your 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 numbers are still going up. You you clearly are still rating everything with like pretty high SFRs. But I wanted a deal. I just wanted to take a break because I thought that I needed it, and I probably ended up hindering myself. Not in that exact moment right there with that one week of training, but that mentality for years and years and years probably leads to more time out of the gym than I probably needed to be spending, which I would assume compounds over time. Yeah. No. Yeah. Gr great point. And. I guess uh, something people will be interested to hear, uh, and I think people have spoken about it online in terms of, okay, so when I think of a deload, I don't think of a, a week off the gym. I think of going in and maybe doing some like light technique work or whatever it might be. Uh, could you speak to why there maybe was a week off? And if you think there might be any differences if those participants went into the gym and just like backed off a little bit versus just had the week completely off? Yeah, so I... I definitely hear you. And this is a detraining study, technically more than it is a deload study, because we didn't use deloading practices more in line with what are typically used. Uh, and if you want to know about what deload practices are 
like more commonly used by experts in the field. There's an amazing paper by Lee Bell that uh, he you, he interviewed a bunch of high level athletes, uh, both coaches and athletes, to see what you know to get some ideas for what typical deload paradigms look like. Um, and and they found that yeah, it's a, a traditional deload usually is like a, a period about a one week period of reduced training volume and intensity, right? Not zero volume and zero intensity, but reduced to usually like one third or one half or something like that, right? And I definitely would have liked to have had a study where we did a week of detraining in the middle and a week of you know a, an actual deload paradigm, but. Uh, given that this is the first of the first with respect to deloading, it was kind of a proof of concept type thing where it was better. It was easier for us to do just a, a complete week of detraining to give an idea because if that didn't have an effect, then one week of lower volume intensity certainly wouldn't have an effect, right? Or, or conceivably wouldn't have an effect, right? So it's a bit of a proof of concept. And yeah, obviously I would have loved to have done another deload study where we used an actual deload paradigm, but it just wasn't feasible for the purposes of this uh, semester at least. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely fair, and uh, yeah, like you said, you were, I guess the the hypothesis was talking about potentially this resensitization effect and this kind of improvement in anabolic signaling, and you'd expect a week off to benefit you more than kind of this just like deload and. Uh, a lot of people also uh, will talk about the differences between a week off and a deload week. And I think most people accept that it's probably minimal, the differences anyway. Like it's not, especially if you're deloading, like you are really going in light and easy. Do you think it would have impacted potentially any of the, the kind of strength scores or maybe some of the soreness that they experienced afterwards? So I, I I can't speak, you know, confidently about, oh, dude, had they just come in and done a little bit less, they would have been totally fine, right? Because I have no idea. Uh, but I will say, I, I think that especially given Pax, Dr. Pack's dissertation, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the minimum effective dose guy. He basically found that you can make pretty incredible and substantial strength increases using very low volumes in the gym. So I think that with that in conjunction with this study, I I'd feel pretty confident in in if if subjects came in and just did one ninth of the training volume that they were doing for the move the specific movements that they were training we may not have seen as drastic of a differences in strength now that may be affected by like differences in deload paradigms right so for instance i would feel more confident saying that for people who go into the gym and do much lower training volumes but still keep intensity especially relative intensity higher during deloads but some people don't uh some people like train with like five to six RIR during deloads, which is totally fine, especially if hypertrophy is your goal. Um, but I, I wouldn't be confident in saying that even if you come into the gym a couple of days a week and do less volume, if the relative intensity is still really low, I, I don't know if there would be drastic differences as far as, as strength is concerned. But even then, I'm not super confident because you're still practicing the movement. And that could be, as far as differences in our study, they could just be come down to a, a slight detraining of the motor pattern itself throughout the course of the study. So I have no idea. Do I think that it would see less severe results if we used a normal deload paradigm? Maybe. But again, I don't know. There's a thesis idea for somebody else. <laughs> Throw that together and, and then we'll know for sure, which would be great. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. I guess you tested strength at the end of the nine weeks. So even after the deload, they had weeks to get back ingrained with the lifts and everything. So I guess the skill components unlikely to be like super different. So I uh, I think the, the thought of 
it's unlikely that doing like a light week of training would have impacted your results that you saw dramatically is probably fair. But like you said, we can't, we can't say that that for definite, just like we can't say like uh, some of the stronger comments that have been out there in terms of deloading, I think maybe were a bit unfounded initially. Yeah, especially. So one that I'd love to squash just right now is that the idea that, and this is the one that I've seen the most, uh, is that deloads are injury preventative. Like they're, they're going to help with injury prevention. Uh, let me make it clear. I think that deloads probably long-term do help with injury prevention, but making very strong claims that deloads for sure are like the, the secret to preventing injury in the gym is completely unfounded in my personal opinion. I don't, I don't think that that's a safe claim. Uh, you could very easily make the same argument that if you're managing your fatigue properly uh, within the mesocycle, not even with the use of deloads, you're probably doing all you can to prevent uh, injury anyway. So uh, yeah, sorry. That's one that I've seen more than any other one. I just wanted to get that out of the way really quickly. Yeah, it's like that one I mentioned at the start where it's those kind of tendon, ligament kind of tissues that maybe you're not feeling the pain sensation and then suddenly it can just kind of spring up and go. But it, it's, again, like you said, I've heard that's talked about and I've heard, again, deloads being like an injury prevention tool, like take it, otherwise your body will like break down for you or what have you. And it's like, but we haven't got actual evidence and research to back that up. Similar to a lot of people critique Milo with the long muscle lengths and be like, oh, that's more injurious because you're training at a long muscle length. It's like, have we actually got data to support that statement? Or are you just basing it off what seems logical to you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the same thing people will, it makes logical sense that if you extend this study to like a 27 week period, we would see different results. But again, we just don't know. So saying like, oh, these, the, we would, would have definitely seen differences if the study had lasted a year, maybe, maybe not. But uh, making those came, claims strongly is just a bit unfounded, I think. Yeah, I, I've definitely been that person that's gone too much towards logic. And that's kind of beaten what is actually found in science. Like, I guess a lot of bodybuilders use the logic of after 6pm, I don't need as many nutrients, I'm winding down for the day. So any kind of calories I consume then is going to be body fat or whatever it is, or those sort of like, oh, it seems logical that that would be like, makes sense. Or like the earth is flat because like, I can't see it being round. <laughs> like, we have better tools to assess these things than just like For sure. your intu intuition. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, log a really good rule of thumb, just in general, I learned this in like a sophomore year of college, I by uh psychology class that like logical isn't rational or logical isn't always rational so something that makes sense just because it sounds really good and and you guys had this on your podcast just because it sounds really sciencey does not necessarily mean that it is it does not necessarily mean that that is actually the big t truth even though it may sound like it so yeah i couldn't agree yeah yeah i think you see that a lot with especially in this day and age with uh, science becoming much more of like a marketing tool and a, like a, like a selling tool i think a lot of people who are deemed experts make that leap of faith into ah, oh, and it the consumer again it sounds super logical so it's nice and uh it's great to have people like brad uh, and brad's the perfect example of this who's always ready to be like hey like we need to make sure that we're not talking black and white statements here like we can't make that leap of faith we've got to follow the science <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's been so Brad has been an unbelievable mentor for a trillion different reasons. But that's a huge one is like, science never show like if you have someone saying science shows or science has proven, it's a red flag right there alarms and whistles should probably be going off the second year someone say that. So yeah, I think Brad is really good about speaking really carefully when it comes to findings and his research. And you mentioned a few limitations, or you kind of were talking about some limitations. Uh, I think it would be good for people to be aware of kind of what limitations you discuss. And this was all in the paper for people who aren't aware, but people don't always read it. So I'd love for you to kind of let people be aware of what limitations you discussed. Yeah, so uh, this study, like every study in ever, especially within exercise science, has a tons of limitations to it. And uh, you go on Instagram and basically anyone there will be happy to tell you all of the limitations that this study has, right? Uh, so first and foremost, we used trained, uh, the population that we used, we used trained young, healthy individuals. So we can't be sure that these findings would uh, apply to like younger individuals, older individuals, untrained individuals, what have you. Uh, and further, we we can't be sure that these findings would extrapolate to super well advanced lifters like yourself, Steve. Uh, so uh, individuals in the study had an average training experience of four years, so pretty substantial, but not 10, 12, 15 years. So we can't be sure about that, right? Uh, also, it's pretty important to note that subjects uh, were not required to have any training in the like Smith machine squat. So any 
huge uh, increases in 1RM strength can be at least partly uh, attributed to neural improvements in that movement specifically, right? Uh, we kind of touched on volitional failure. That's kind of a big limitation, obviously. So me and all the research assistants in the lab tried our hardest to push all of the subjects as hard as we could. Subjects were training really, really hard on average, uh, but there were instances where people stopped the sets uh, with maybe one or two reps in the tank rather than letting the bar crush them and having us pick the bar up off of them, right? Um, also, nine-week study. So it, the, these findings can't necessarily be extrapolated over a like 27-week period or certainly not like a lifting career, for instance. So just because we found that deloads aren't necessary for or not necessarily beneficial for a nine-week period doesn't mean that deloads are not beneficial over like a training career, obviously. Um, and then finally, probably the biggest limitation of the study are just the differences in how we implemented a deload. And like how with and like the differences between how we implemented a deload and how deloads are like actually used in the real world. So we kind of touched on this, right? But uh, one being that we used a complete detraining period rather than an actual deload. And then also because we used a proactive deload rather than a reactive deload. So we had we from the very start, we were saying you are going to deload after four weeks, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? So can't necessarily extrapolate these findings to individuals using more reactive deloads like are more commonly used by coaches and athletes these days. So I would say those, those are probably the biggest limitations. And I'm sure that there's some that I glossed over that are in the paper. So read the paper. Yeah, no, that was that was great. I think the only one I have noted down was that you measured lower body and not upper body. And right, up, right. like like you said before, upper body was, uh, you didn't supervise their upper body. So they could have been training like complete and utter <laughs> pansies. But I doubt yeah, exactly. it somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And given the like vast body of literature in terms of like the fact that even if people are leaving a couple of reps in reserve, like they're still like getting very good effect sizes. And it's not like night and day differences between training to failure, although some people like to say it is. It's unlikely to be that way. So I think that's that's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And I just really, I know that like the biggest thing that people like when these studies come out, the biggest thing that people say is like, these people weren't training hard. No way. They were actually doing all of these sets to failure. Uh, and we're going to figure out a way to get the ethics committee to be okay with us filming uh, sets to failure, because we really just want people to see like, I get that. Yeah. There's a lot of pencil pushers out there that say they're training to failure that aren't, we were pushing these people really really hard uh, throughout the course of the study. So uh, that's just one that I'd like to squash as quickly as I can. People saying that these people weren't actually training hard, uh, they very much were training, if not to failure, very, very close to failure. Yeah. No, I think that's, and I mean, they saw decent muscle growth during that period of time. And I think you reported that, like, at least Brad said this on the podcast, like they, this is some of the hardest training they've ever done in their lifting career. Is that, I don't know if that, that might be a bit of an extreme statement, but like it was hard training for all of them. It wasn't like any of them were complaining. It was too easy. Yeah, no. So Brad like really loves asking people. So he does all the ultrasounds blindly. Also Lyle, just so you know, uh, right off the bat. Um, if you know, you know, uh, he likes to ask people when he's doing their ultrasound, like, how was it? How, like, did, were you pushed hard? And over the last, I, I've been in his lab for two years now. And we've had a sum total of probably like 400, uh, 300 subjects or so across all the studies that we've done. And all but one, shout out subject 19 in this study, you know who you are, uh, said that this was the hardest they've ever trained. And he didn't say that this was the easier. He just said this is how hard he normally trains anyway. So, yeah, it was they they basically every subject said that this was the hardest they'd ever trained. And you'll hear that uh, across like not just our studies, but most studies in general where they have supervised resistance training. It's just very common for individuals to be pushed harder than they normally would in the gym, which makes sense, right? I mean, you have a team of, at any given point, like three or four people with stopwatches and clipboards screaming at you to do one more, do one more, do one more. And you also have the safety net of knowing that you have spotters at all times. So it makes sense that people are pushing harder and and consequently they are pushing harder. Yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's great. And uh, on your point in terms of filming participants, I think that would be awesome if you're able to do that like if the ethics committee can allow you to do that but i think it's helped by people like yourself max um, and other people that are like milo wolf for example with his studies who are in the lab taking people through this who are clearly training training hard themselves and then like i trust someone like yourself who 
clearly trains trains hard if you're telling me not that like again i i think everyone can agree like if I, you should trust people generally like if you are a researcher and you're saying your participants are training really hard but there's something about a well-trained lifter being like trust me guys like i was pushing these guys really hard because you can tell like you said some of your participants you felt like maybe they had a couple left in, in the tank sometimes but it, hopefully that makes sense <laughs> yeah no, for sure then well thank you for one uh, but yeah, definitely. Like it, it, you do know, and that's why I can say confidently there are some subjects who every once in a while would stop a set with a couple of reps left in the tank because it's just obvious they finished the set and it looked really hard. But they finished the set and like walk away completely fine. It was like you just did twelve reps out of your supposed twelve RM for a Smith squat. You shouldn't be able to have a conversation with me right now. So there's a lot of little markers that that, that give it away. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thought I had actually as you were talking, and this was kind of something I guess I'm presuming, but I thought I better ask. Were you monitoring performance, I guess, on their lower body throughout the, the whole period of time? And if you were, did you was everyone's performance just like uh, maintaining or improving? Obviously, they're training pretty much to, to failure most times. So was week to week performance kind of you mentioned some neurological gains maybe at some point and then did it kind of taper off i don't know if that was something you're monitoring it's just something a, a thought that came to mind yeah so uh so we don't have volume load uh, equated or anything like that we didn't we didn't take the time for for a variety of reasons that i'll get into if you'd like uh but we don't have it all mapped out as far as progressing for subject to subject throughout the entire study but yes uh, the majority of subjects saw pretty, you know, like standard increases in in volume load throughout the course of the study. So whether it be the reps at the same weight that they were doing were getting higher, or they were just using more and more weight week week to week. Um, there was one subject in particular that comes to mind that actually saw pretty drastic stalls in performance throughout the course of the study. Um, and he's a he's a big strong dude, no names, nothing like that, obviously, but a very strong guy and has been lifting for 10 plus years. And I think we were just throwing volumes at him that maybe he wasn't equipped to handle. He still grew pretty substantially, but uh, he was just one of note that definitely did, did not see a continuous growth. He, he, he definitely hadn't Smith machine squatted. So he saw some improvements there just because it was a new movement and then very quickly leveled off or even somewhat deteriorated throughout the course of the study as well. But everyone except for this one subject that I'm thinking of in my head, yeah, they improved pretty yeah. consistently week to week. That's really interesting because I guess, and it's nice hearing about that participant because I'm thinking about myself going through such a study. I'm like, if I was training to what I deemed like uh, like failure for me, or I zero RAR, I'm not sure like, if it was a new movement, I think I maybe would gain some at the start and then I just like plateau completely. And it maybe even some days underperform versus other days. So it's nice hearing that insight because I imagine a lot of the listeners are between those training ages and probably most of the listeners like three four plus years up to like a decade plus as well so uh, it's yeah it's just interesting to hear how their performance was and whether or not anyone like dip performance and that might have had individual differences and actually that's something i guess i can ask was there any um i don't think in the paper there was like pull aparts in terms of individual data was there anyone who like was way off the average to what you'd expect uh, yes, actually. So we had two subjects, one of which being the one I just discussed and another one, actually, now that I think about it being the other one that I just discussed. Uh, so the one that said that he trained harder than he uh, trained just as hard as he always trained. Uh, they actually both saw, if I remember correctly, decreases in their one RM uh, strength. That is incredibly rare in studies like this. Um, usually you, you, you see pretty drastic increases because one, it's new movements on average for people and because on average, people don't have a ton of training experience in these studies. Uh, but these two were just clearly training with volumes that were likely too high for them. And it kind of, it seemingly had a negative impact on their strength. Now that could be a fluke, maybe the night before they didn't get a good night's rest, but those were definitely the most like stark, like, wow, that is really surprising. Uh, we don't normally see decreases in strength, if anything at all. Um, but as far as just responses to training in general, I don't I don't think we saw anything super crazy. Most people fell within a pretty normal, you know, bell curve, like within a couple standard deviations away from the norm, right? Um, and then those that maybe negatively responded to the training or like really did not like it or their bodies couldn't handle it, dropped out. So remember, we started with 50 and ended up with 39. So it's possible that any of those subjects that we would have seen some crazy outlier results from or responses from maybe just dropped out before we were able to collect that data. That's that's 
interesting to hear about because I'm always interested in the individual data just because a lot of people just zoom in on the average, which I think is great, but it's always nice to know like someone else might be reading this paper and be like, I don't know, completely confused by it because their response is completely different. So it's nice to hear that some people actually did respond quite differently in some aspects. So that's awesome. I guess, uh, what are your concluding thoughts? Like now you've done the study, you've wrapped it up. What are your take-homes or practical take-homes for people listening to this and who have maybe interested in reading the paper? Yeah, so I, I think the most the most obvious and pragmatic takeaway from the study is just that full weeks of detraining, probably not your best bet if you're trying to maximize strength, right? But you're probably not watching this podcast if you're trying to maximize strength. Who gives a shit, right? Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, I also think that the study just lends itself pretty well to like auto-regulated deloads. Uh, so like, for instance, the RTTQ data, so the, the readiness to train questionnaire data that we had, as well as just the conversations that we had with a lot of the subjects on like bi-weekly basis and just like pre and post study, uh, suggested that individuals didn't really feel like they needed a deload in the study. Uh, and so forcing people to take deloads when they don't really feel like they need one might end up doing more harm than good, right? Uh, which kind of, I was actually, I had this in my notes that you kind of mentioned, touched on this with on Menno's post regarding diet breaks, right? Uh, that you probably want to earn that. I hate to use the word earn because there is no earning in this in this field, but like- I always say it, <laughs> earn yeah, deload. Yeah. I use it all the time. <laughs> I probably exactly. said it to you. <laughs> uh, but like you, you want to, you want this thing to benefit you exclusively right that that's the goal with these things these things like diet breaks and deloads is they you, you probably want them to feel needed otherwise there's probably no reason to do it so let your body tell you when you need a deload or diet break uh not just the fact that we have another full moon or something like that right uh and then as far as let's say like how I approach deloads going like after this one, all I care about is hypertrophy. So I could just take the data and say, whatever, I'll just take full weeks off. Um, but actually uh, a couple weeks before the data collection process for this study started, I actually started kind of rethinking and toying with the ways that I do deloads. Um, and I personally hate deload workouts. I don't know about, uh, about you guys, but going into the gym and doing something at like six RIR uh, with like two sets or something is just really boring to me. It's just not something I enjoy. In fact, I would rather take just time away from the gym than going and doing that and do something more productive, like enjoy my time. Uh, so what I like to do now is is just truncate those deload periods. So it's still me completely detraining, but it usually lasts three, four, five days now instead of like a full seven day week. So that's usually how I go about deloading. That is just, that's completely anecdotal. There's no like rationale for that other than it's just seemingly worked for me and my clients, right? And then finally, this is probably just not something people should super worry about. Uh, one, because most people aren't, pe most people watching this podcast at least probably aren't taking full weeks of detraining off constantly anyway. And they probably are doing deloads more in line with what traditional deloads look like, right? Um, and if that's the case, I, I just don't see this uh, being of a concern to anyone in, the, in, the, in, in your audience at the very least, right? And then ultimately, it's going to largely depend on like what your goals are, right? So clearly hypertrophy, probably not something you need to worry about strength, probably not something you need to worry about, especially if you're using actual deload paradigms. And that's kind of corroborated <clears throat> by PAX findings. And then if you're just someone who's living like a normal life, I, I just don't think this is something that you need to really worry about Kind of let deloads be your like, let deloads kind of happen organically, right? Whether that be through like family events, uh, vacations, or what have you. So yeah, th those are my my best practical takeaways from this paper yeah. yeah i think a lot of i think the majority of people listening aren't that person who's just more i guess you could call them like gen pop they're more very dedicated serious listeners that like really push themselves in the gym but like you said a lot of gen pop they get their deloads through like lifestyle breaks or like they're busy whatever it is they probably don't need to but something I think would be worth um, hearing about is when you talk about kind of needing or we talked about earning the deload, what are some of the things you would suggest people should look at or what are you looking at for yourself, your clients as indicators that it's like, okay, now's the time that probably makes sense to take some time off? Yeah, so the, the obvious one and the one that everyone always throws out is just performance detriments, obviously. So like, for instance, yesterday, I had a pretty terrible workout. Not It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't awful, but it just wasn't great. I I did more poorly. Like, so for instance, flat dumbbell benching, right? I did a couple reps less than I did the week before. That's probably not great, right? I wasn't even able to match reps. That's usually a sign of like, hey, 
you probably should take a little bit of time off, especially if that happens like two weeks in a row or two workouts in a row. So like today, when I go do my leg workout, if I start seeing that, like, I'm really struggling to match reps, it's probably a good idea for me to take a deload. Uh, and then some people would argue that you probably don't want to get to that point. You probably don't want to get to a point where you are experiencing detriments in your training. Uh, some more subjective markers that I like, my personal favorite is motivation to train if you just find especially if you're someone like a weirdo like steve or myself where you just your favorite part of the day is going to the gym then and you find that you're struggling to get yourself to go or you're struggling to find yourself excited to go to the gym that's probably a good sign generally speaking now there are exceptions to that obviously like steve i'm sure you never want to go to the gym when you're in contest prep especially towards the end it's just something you kind of have to bite down and do uh, and then on the opposite of the spectrum like if you're someone who has to force yourself to train anyway not likely anyone watching this show um using your opinions regarding training is probably not a good idea either um and then obviously another one that's a bit subjective is like if you start to feel like for the first four weeks of your program bent over rows were hitting your like back really, really with the musculature of your back really, really well. And your like lats were getting sore for the first four weeks. And then week five and six, you go in and like, you're starting to feel it more in your lumbar and your rotator cuff than your muscles itself. That's probably a good, uh, probably a good time to take a little bit of time away from either that movement or take a deload in general. Um, but those are like, my best markers, I suppose, for when deloading is like when you've earned your deload, as, as you like to say. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think performance is a great one. And I guess there can probably be arguments for seeing that or not seeing that. I think the way I see that is for the more advanced individual who kind of knows themselves, they might be able to call it before they get to that point. But like you said, the people that you can't use motivation as an indicator because they don't really want to go, you might need to push them potentially a little bit longer. But I guess even then you could make arguments of like that person who's less trained, how much they're going to get out of that extra week versus like the person who's more trained. Maybe it's more important for them to push themselves to that limit. Regardless, um, I think that's a useful one. And like you said, like consistently seeing it drop, like it's not just from one night of bad sleep or what have you, and you're seeing it across the board. Uh, very, very good signs. And then the other ones you mentioned, the only other thought I have is like sometimes sleep just takes a hit, but that's normally accompanied by just like motivation dropping off, like everything, everything shit just starts hitting the fan uh, in a sense. Uh, so no, I think that's very well stated. And you mentioned taking, you're going about it and taking like days off. Do you have any thoughts on, and I guess I'd love to see research on this. I don't even know how you'd necessarily do it, but you mentioned taking maybe three or four days off. How does someone know? Like most people just maybe deload a week. How does someone know if two days is enough, three days is enough, a week's enough? I, I, I don't, I don't have a good personal answer to that. I don't know if you could use the same indicators of like motivation you mentioned. If after three days you feel well good, should you just like get back into the gym? If like joints and things like this are feeling good, what do you have any thoughts on that? I know it's not a something you can say any strong evidence you've got for it. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have like my own opinions outside of of what we have empirically. But I think that yeah, I mean, for me, it's that 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 antsy feeling like, okay, like, I'm ready to go train again. Like I met like I haven't had a pump in four days, like what's going on? And like, let's get back to it. So that's kind of my biggest one. And that's not that's, that's literally as anecdotal as it gets, obviously. Um, but I, I, I don't know, like, yeah, joints starting to feel a little bit better. I, I, to be honest, I just think that it's like likely the case that people are taking deloads more than they need. So getting an idea of like, of what you getting in tune with your body and its, its ability to tell you what you need is, is a really valuable skill and one that takes a long time to develop. And there's a lot of like inter-individual differences. So knowing when you're ready to get back to the gym is really difficult and something that I can't give you a really good answer. In fact, I don't think most people can. I think that's something that you're going to have to figure out for yourself. Um, and it is obviously always usually better to like err on the side of caution so like if you're not sure after four days of you know detraining or doing traditional deloads even push it three more days i mean well, who's it's it's certainly not going to make a huge detriment to your to your physique or to your strength goals so i would just say err on the side of caution it's kind of like always my my go-to um even though now i have a study saying that erring on the side of caution might do more harm than good uh but i i i think that most people are pretty aware of when they should get back to the gym, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I again, it's one of those where 
I think a lot of people just that Gregorian calendar one week just fits nicely into their lifestyle. I've certainly had that where I'm like, oh, I train Monday through uh, Saturday, Sunday's off, and then I start again and I like it. It fits my lifestyle and things, which I think for consistently adhering long term, that's probably really important for some people. But it's something I've, uh, I just ended up pushing a mesocycle for six weeks because I finished in week five. I felt great. Well, not great. I felt for me pretty good where I was like, man, I don't feel complete trash. So I go for a week six. And then I literally took a rest day, two days off, and I'm now into week four of my next mezzo. And I was just testing it. Like your study hadn't even come out yet. I was just like, fuck it. I feel pretty good after just a weekend off. I'm just antsy getting at it. And I know I'm forced into a deload after five weeks now anyway. So uh, I knew that was coming. And at the moment, I, I thought maybe I'd hit a wall a bit sooner. I thought I'd maybe feel a bit trash sooner. I can't comment too strongly, but man, I if you'd told me a year ago, Steve, you'll take two days off for a deload and you'll be absolutely fine and like training well after four weeks, I'd be like, I mean, I wouldn't not believe me, but I'd be like, why did I take two days off? Whereas now it's feeling less silly just to experiment a little bit when we don't have strong evidence to say otherwise. Yeah, and I think we do have strong evidence to say that like, and they talk about this a lot on like the 3DMJ podcast, like once you've got muscle, your body likes it and wants to keep it. It's like, it's hard to build muscle at this age in our training career, but it's also pretty hard to lose muscle at this age in our training career, which is kind of nice. So experimenting with different deload paradigms and different like X weeks on X weeks off things for you is it's, it's probably not going to hurt you. And if anything, it's just going to give you good insights into like what you best respond to. And I think that's something that's like really lacking just in general from people in this sphere uh, is downplaying like your personal experiences and really upholstering the the findings that we get from research, which like we touched on earlier is based on averages. So get more confident in listening to your body. Uh, that's, that's another big takeaway from this from this episode, I guess. No, absolutely. I, I agree with that. We mentioned it before where I've definitely been there like following the textbook, like PubMed warrior type of thing, like follow the research, like black and white. It's like, ah, that's not how science works really. And you, you've got to look how someone's responding in real time. So yeah, I think it's it's very exciting. And I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. I don't know if there's anything you feel like needed covering anything in addition to this. I think we did a pretty damn good of diving into it and every which place. <laughs> Yeah, no, I feel I feel pretty good about it. I'm sure that the second we hang up, I'll think of 30 more things I should have <laughs> said. But and I'm sure people in the comments of this video will tell me all the stuff I forgot. But I feel pretty good as far as what we've covered so far. I have actually just one uh, comment. Again, this is based off uh, your personal experience. If you've still got the time for it, you're Please. right. So uh, I wonder if there's still a time for proactive deloads or not proactive necessarily. Well, I, I can say proactive in terms of like a, a timeline for contest prep or something. Like you want to line your deload up with a peak, uh, peak week, for example, it's probably a good idea. So that's just one thought I had. But it was more so the thought I wanted to get your opinion on during dieting periods. I just think the risk versus reward of maybe being like, if you're on that edge of, should I go for another week of training or do I need to back off? you might be warranted to edge towards, like you said, the cautious side. That's the only thought I had. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Just because the benefit of going another week, I don't know if that, because you're not likely growing muscle, you could generate a lot of fatigue, maybe, I don't know, more likely generate an injury in that highly fatigued state. Maybe it's better to side with caution. Maybe if someone's dieting, hearing this, and they're like, man, I feel pretty trash, but maybe I have another week. Maybe it's worth to side with caution during dieting periods. Whether nutritional phase, if you think that has an impact on people's decision-making. Uh, so I, I definitely think it can. Um, so I, I also think that it's important for us to delineate between contest dieting and dieting dieting. Because so for me, I've never competed in bodybuilding and don't ever plan on competing in bodybuilding. It's just not something that really interests me, right? No offense to, to my bodybuilding friends out there like yourself, Steve. But I think that there probably should be a higher caution when competing, obviously, and when you're getting to super low levels of body fat. Um you had mentioned sleep earlier, and I think that's when I start to notice it most is when I'm trying to get uh, inordinately lean while trying to train really hard. That's when my sleep starts taking the biggest hit. Like usually I can train really, really hard when I'm bulking or, or even eating at maintenance, and that's not usually going to interfere with my sleep or anything like that. Uh, but when I start compounding that with a with a caloric deficit, then that can start to see real detriments. Um, and then as far as I can't obviously can't give any like confident answers regarding this but yeah i think that it's probably just 
in general, a good idea to play it safer when you're dieting uh, with all things fatigue. So like for me, for instance, like I just have shit joints in general and they just kind of get beat up from hypertrophy training. And that is exacerbated pretty drastically when I'm dieting. So I do find myself needing to take more frequent breaks and train with somewhat lower volumes than, than, than I would like on average. So I do think that the dieting phase that you're in can have an impact, but make sure that you're not kind of like using that as a crutch for a certain, like, you know what I mean? Like if you're just someone who's trying to go from like 20% to 13% body fat, you probably don't need like diet breaks constantly or deloads because of all this excess fatigue. But if you're someone who's trying to get down to like contest shape, yeah, it's probably a good idea to be like really on your P's and Q's and dot your I's and cross your T's when you're, when you're worrying about fatigue and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that's really well said. I think again, it comes back to that, like use the tool when it's needed, not just because and uh, then you should get the result you want from the tool uh, that you're using there the same with diet breaks i think at least from my experience tool uh, too sorry and they seem to be more uh, helpful for that person maybe taking the stage and getting leaner they seem to be more beneficial same with refeeds and things because again if you are basing it off i guess that uh, reactive approach that's when you're going to feel accumulated fatigue more quickly and joints and niggles and you're going to feel diet break uh, sorry you're going to feel uh, diet fatigue more so in that period of time and everything like that so it makes a ton of sense and uh, i just want to say thank you massively for coming on it's been a fantastic chat i appreciate it big time uh, are you doing anything are you working on any studies at the moment if you've got any excite, anything exciting I can uh, ask you about? Uh, so I, I am working with uh, Lee Bell and Dr. Pack and David Nolan out of Sheffield Hallam University. So we're actually working on, that's like kind of like the wink week earlier that I said that we're working on a, a paper right now that you're obviously aware of, Steve, where we're trying to create like a universal taxonomy for deloads. So earlier I was talking about how there's no like universal definition for deloads or anything like that. Um, and we're kind of working towards that right now. So that's a really exciting paper that should come out hopefully pretty soon, uh, but we'll see. And then also, yeah, Dr. Schoenfeld has some really cool well, dr schoenfeld's students actually his master students have a lot of cool uh stuff in the work so shout out ryan burke and alec pinero and max popo i think they're going to come out with some really cool stuff here soon that people should be looking forward to and i'm just really lucky enough to be able to work with them on those and then as far as my own studies uh there's some stuff in the works obviously but as of right now i'm taking a year away from academia and kind of just spending like living a little bit more in industry spending like living a normal life not running a thesis and stuff like that but here soon yeah i should have some more research coming out that i'm really excited about hopefully not with regards to deloads either uh, <laughs> i'm pretty i'm pretty deloaded out uh, dr schoenfeld <laughs> and i joke a lot about me becoming uh, uh mr deload or whatever and i just the last thing that i want my brand <laughs> to be is the guy who's associated with not working out so yeah deloads are, are pretty much done with me as far as i'm concerned uh and, and then research going forward for me is going to look kind of hopefully similar to dr schoenfeld's where it's just delving into like different variables across uh, resistance training to see what can have the biggest impact on hypertrophy so yeah that's that's what i've got planned moving forward Awesome. You can be uh, Mr. Anti-Deload. That'll work. Then yeah, people will I'll love take you. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. And I know I've been, I've got you on social media, so I've been seeing your stories and all this amazing food that you're posting up over this like amazing view. And I'm like, what's this guy up to? It looks too good. Uh, so I'm glad you're having a bit of a break and some downtime. If people want to keep up to date with your research, with what you're up to, what, uh, where should they head? Yeah, so you had mentioned Instagram. It's where I'm probably most active. So Coleman at all, Coleman.et.el. Uh, no, geez, I just spelled my own handle wrong, A-L, sorry. Uh, but anyway, it'll be linked in the show notes, I'm assuming anyway. And then also for the real nerds out there, just Max Coleman on ResearchGate if you want to be up to date with like the research when it's coming out. So that's where, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure that's linked in the bio or in the description, wherever it is. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Max. And uh, cheers, everyone, for listening. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of 
the mini cup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cup movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.